Hi there, welcome in. It's Downtown, the podcast, episode 60. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. I'm Rich Kimball, joined by Carrie Haskell. We are in the Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine. Our daily show, Downtown, originates from here every weekday from 4 to 6 Eastern Time. WZON Radio, WKIT HD3, streaming audio at downtownwithrichkimball.com. A couple of interesting conversations on the program this week with a music legend and one of the best writers around who covers all kinds of topics. Music, sports, you name it, Dan Epstein can do it. And uh, we'll talk with him about a couple of topics in the second half of the program this week. But first up, it's a music legend. Broke onto the scene in 1962. Pretty good when your first hit goes all the way to number one. And it did for Tommy Rowe with his homage to Buddy Holly called Sheila. That would be the first of his 23 top 100 hits. Six of them made the top 10. A couple went to number one. Bunch of million sellers as well. We're talking about Tommy Rowe, who uh, joined us recently for an interesting conversation about uh, his many hits and his long career in the music business. First of all, uh, how are you feeling? It was uh, not quite a year ago that you had pretty major surgery. Yeah, uh, July 27th will be one year. I had... um... Uh, quadruple bypass surgery and um, it just kind of snuck up on me I was I tell you what happened I was at the Atlanta airport and I was feeling good up until I get off the plane and I couldn't walk to the baggage claim I was so out of breath and I thought wow that's really weird you know first time that happened to me so I kind of fluffed it off it went away and a few nights later in the middle of the night I wake up with this terrible chest pain and the same thing out of breath I said "Uh uh-oh Body's screaming at me, something's wrong. Mm. So I go and I have an angiogram, and sure enough, I have 90% blockage of my main artery. And uh, my my heart doctor uh, I, uh, put me right in the hospital. She didn't even let me go home. Th- and three days later, I had the operation. I mean, it was that fast. And um, I tell you, in a way, I was really lucky because if I'd, if I'd have fluffed it off, you know, anything could have happened. I could have had a stroke or anything. So I really have to count my lucky stars that I just went ahead and had it uh, attended to, you know. Well, we're so glad everything has worked out and you're feeling great. And back in the news, people talking about you all over the place here, thanks to USA Today listing the absolute best songs in history. And right there in the list from 50 years ago is Dizzy. Number 91, man. I snuck in there in the 100. I mean, that was such an honor. Uh, you know, of course, at this stage in my career, any compliment or award is, is well-received by T. Rowe. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was really pleased to see that as a songwriter. That's really cool, you know. Well, I want to talk, we'll talk about Dizzy a little bit later on, but I want to talk about the start of your career. Uh, you wrote a wonderful book about your experiences from Cabbage Town to Tinseltown and places in between. How did you go there in 1962 from, from rural Georgia, from Cabbage Town, all the way to the top of the Billboard charts. Well, I tell you, it was it was kind of an interesting journey. I um, I was, you know, at fourteen. I wrote. I don't know if you've heard this story or not, but I wrote Sheila, which was originally called Frida when I was fourteen years old. And I I wrote the song for a little girl I had kind of chased around the playground. We we had a kind of a semi young crush on each other, I guess. But I wrote this poem for her, and then a few. A few months later, my dad taught me three chords on the guitar, 
And I thought, well, if I could put some music to these crazy little poems I'm writing, who knows, maybe I could become a songwriter. So I, <laughs> that's what I, I started pursuing that. And so I, I, I carried Frida around in my back pocket for a couple of years. Sweet little Frida, you know if you see her blue eyes in a ponytail. And I, I had a chance to uh, uh, make a record locally in Atlanta, and I, so I met this record producer, and I, I sang Frida for him. He said, man, I love that song, Frida, but I'm not crazy about the title. See if you can come up with a different title. So um, we came up with Sheila, and as, as we like to say when there's nothing left to say, the rest is history. I mean, the song <laughs> became my first, my first number one in 1962 and my first gold record. And that would lead uh, to a, a huge tour where a little group from uh, England called the Beatles were the opening act for you. Yeah, an unknown group at the time. <laughs> Quite an amazing story. Earlier in uh, our, in 1962, I did the tour with Sam Cooke through the South with Chris Montez. So I met Chris Montez on that tour. And our agent wanted to book us in England, and we both accepted the tour, and we were the headliners of the tour. And we go over there, and there's this featured act on our tour called The Beatles. Nobody really knew who The Beatles were at this time. They'd only done, I think they did one other tour with um, Helen Shapiro, I think, before our tour. And um, so here we go. We go out on this tour, The Beatles. And they. when I first met them, I thought they were actually our backup band for the tour, <laughs> you know. And... Um, they had a, two bands there. One 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 band was our backup band, and, and then you had the Beatles. And uh, we got along great. We met each other and talked. And, they, of course, I was really surprised with their look. You know, it, it was totally unconventional as far as American artists were concerned with the hair, you know, and the whole thing. Right. And they dressed really neat in suits and everything, suits and tie. So we do the tour, and Beatlemania takes off on our tour. I used to joke with John. I said, you know, John, because of Chris and I, you guys are going to become big stars. <laughs> <laughs> because it all happened on our tour. It was like the springboard for the Beatles. Now, is the story right? We're talking to Tommy Rowe here on Downtown. That uh, You came back to the States, and you had uh, you had a recording. I guess it was at a test pressing or a demo from the Beatles, and you took it in to Felton Jarvis and, yeah. and gave a listen, but, but nobody here wanted to sign that group. Well, I... I developed a good relationship with their manager um, on that tour. And uh, his name's just, what's, what, what's their manager's name? Uh, uh, Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein. My goodness, the, the mind is going here. <laughs> but I, I developed a good relationship with Brian on that tour, and he was talking to my manager about handling me in Europe, managing me in Europe, you know. Um, what's interesting about that is, Brian or the Beatles didn't have a clue what was in store for them. I mean, they were just, you know, he was trying to develop a, a, a like a, a, a group of, of artists that he could manage, you know. So they were talking about managing me, and um, he asked me if I would take a promo pack back to my label and see if they would be interested in signing the Beatles. And, of course, I agreed to do that. He gave me – actually, it was, it was just a little – plastic bag from Nim's record from his record store, you know, with their album in it and a bio and a photo and that kind of thing, you know. So I come back to the state. I take the Queen Elizabeth uh, back, which I wanted to enjoy that. It was kind of an interesting trip, five-day trip over the, across the Atlantic. And I came into the docks in New York City, and Felton met me there in the docks. And I'd been hyping him on the Beatles the whole tour. 
about how, you know, I, I was telling them it's like Elvis all over again. You know, they, they're creating pandemonium wherever they go, chaos at the concerts, the whole thing. So he was very interested, and uh, he met me at the docks. We went right to Sam Clark's office at, in New York with uh, my little promo pack and felt and all excited. We were all excited about the Beatles. And we go in the office, and they congratulate me on the tour, and they say, I understand the tour went great, and it's good to have you back, and you've got to make some new records and all of that small talk. And then uh, Sam says, I understand. Felton tells me that you found an act you would like for us to consider signing to our label. I said, yeah, they're called the Beatles. And, it, you know, it just got quiet in the office. <laughs> and especially when I showed them the album cover, of the, the front cover of the Beatles, they just, it just, the office got quiet. I mean, it was amazing. And Felton said, well, you got to listen to them. So he takes the, the uh, album out of the cover and puts it on the turntable, drops the needle, plays a few bars of the song, picks up the needle, looks at Felton and me, and says, I'll tell you what, kid, let us be the talent scouts. That's got to be the worst piece of crap I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so Felton and I are standing there with our jaws dropping and thinking, we just knew we had the next Elvis, right? <laughs> And here these guys just laugh us out of the office. I mean, we were <laughs> devastated. And, of course, six months later, the Beatles happened. And i tell you a funny story. I used to go to these record promos in Miami. They, they'd have these um, where you'd meet the executives and you'd go down and promote your record and the whole thing. And the next one of those I went to, they used to have this cabana at the Eden Rock Hotel. And I walk out by the pool towards their cabana, and they all run for the exits. <laughs> Here comes the kid that brought us the Beatles. <laughs> embarrassing. Well, when they finally um, did come here to America, you got to work with them again, uh, opening for them at the big show in Washington, yes. D.C. Yes, Brian Epstein asked me if I would open for them on their first concert. You know, they did the Ed Sullivan show on, uh, I think it was, I forgot the dates, but the concert was on February 11th, 1964. And, um, they did the Ed Sullivan show, and then two days later was the concert, and they took a train down to do the concert. And, of course, I agreed to do that, and um, I opened for them. And still, even at that time, Brian and the Beatles didn't have a clue what was in store, what was about to happen to them. I mean, they didn't need an opening act. I mean, <laughs> what do they need an opening act for? But they didn't know that. They thought that's the way it was done, you know, so they had to have an opening act. So the Chiffons and myself were the opening act for the Beatles on that show. And uh, then after that, you know, it just, it was sort of Beatlemania from then on out. Tommy, you talk in your book, uh, wonderful stories and, and harrowing stories in many ways. And you mentioned touring with Sam Cooke, what it was like touring in the South uh, in the midst of segregation in the 1960s. Yeah, that was the first big tour I did. And, you know, I was such a fan of Sam Cooke. And on that tour, there were several, uh, it was an all-black troupe, you know. And they had Curtis Mayfield and Impressions, uh, Sam Cooke, and several other acts on the show. And um, so that was my first big tour. And to me, it was just all about the music. I wasn't even thinking about the segregated thing that was going on in the South. Uh, I mean, it shows how naive I was. I was a very naive kid. It was just all that was on my mind was music, you know, and touring with Sam Cooke. So I take on the tour, and uh, we go out, and I find out that really the reason they have one white act on the tour is because during that time, during segregated times, they couldn't go into restaurants and eat. Right. And so 
I was kind of like a runner. You know, they would park the bus down the street away from the mom-and-pop restaurant. And mind you, you have to remember back in those days, there were no McDonald's or Burger Kings or Kentucky Fried Chicken. They, they didn't exist. They were all mom-and-pop restaurants, you know. So I would get off the bus and walk back up the street to their little restaurant and order like 40 hamburgers or whatever, cheeseburgers or chicken or whatever it was we everybody wanted. And I always got some really strange looks from the restaurants, you know, and I would have to come up with some kind of – my favorite story was, well, they'd say, well, why are you ordering so much food? What's going on? I said, well, this is like a fraternity stunt, you know, <laughs> a fraternity stunt. I mean, if they knew that I was ordering all these, who knows, maybe they wouldn't have served me, you know. So I did that through the whole tour. You know, I was like the, the runner for everybody, and I didn't know that that's what was going on. I thought, of course, I had the number one record in the country, Sheila, so they were they were glad to have me on the tour because I had a big hit record, you know. And um, so we did the tour, finished the tour. But another thing, uh, they couldn't stay in the hotels either, you know, so right. they dropped me off at some little mom-and-pop hotel, and then they would go into the community and stay in people's houses or churches or some of the black hotels, and then the next morning they'd pick me up and we'd go to the next gig, you know. So quite a learning experience for me, for a naive 20-year-old, you know, <laughs> and uh, we've I, actually it got kind of dangerous towards the end. I was getting threats from you know, the whites and the blacks. It was like, you know, it was it was kind of dangerous. So my manager pulled me off the tour in Nashville. Well, I was looking at some of the pictures on your website, which is a, a great website, by the way, and looking at that, boy, the group of talent that assembled down in Muscle Shoals at Fame mm -hmm. Studios with a Rick Hall, Felton, yourself, Ray Stevens, Norbert Putnam. What a, what a talented crew. Yeah, that was the when I cut everybody. That was the everybody session. And, uh, of course, everybody turned out to be a top-five record for me, you know. And um, they, they were just uh, incredible musicians. They, you know, I think they still, in that, they live in Nashville now, all of those guys. Ray, of course, has the Cabaret Theater mm. he built there now, which is going great. And I did his TV show a few months ago, and he has the Cabaret TV show. Right. So I have a, also, I, have, I don't know if you saw it, I have a picture of Ray in 1963 when we were working on the Sheila album and then a picture of me in 1917 when I did his TV show. Did I, you see that one? I saw those two together. They're great, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting contrast, you know, so many years apart and we, we're still friends and still still doing what we do, you know. I mean, one of the things that separated you from a lot of the people who, who had a bunch of hits uh, is the fact that you wrote your own songs. You were able to you were able to perform and write in a lot of different styles, too. And I, I look at Dizzy, which, I mean, that thing just blew up 50 springs ago, four weeks at number one. And and yeah. people think of that as, well, you get the label of it being a bubblegum song. But that's an incredibly complex song. What are there, about a dozen key changes in that song? Yes, it is. It, it, it modulates, so you can't modulate anymore. <laughs> and you it's wrote a... that with Freddie Weller, right? I did. That was the first big hit that Freddie and I wrote together. And uh, the way Fred, you know, Freddie and I were friends in Atlanta. He was, he used to be the guitarist for Billy Joe Royal and Joe South. He mm. worked with both of those guys. And so when I went out to California after I got out of the service, I'd written Sweet Pea to try to keep it stay in the charts. I called it Soft Rock, you know, which turned out to be the, bubble, the first bubblegum song of mine. And I'd written that while I was in the Army. And I recorded it in California. So 
uh, when I was went to California, I also got the gig on where the action is with the Dick Clark uh, show in the afternoon. I was like a regular on that show with Paul Revere and the Raiders. Right. And Paul lost his guitarist, and he was asking me if I knew somebody, and I suggested he get in touch with Freddie, you know, that uh, he might be interested in coming out and joining the Raiders. So he called Freddie, and Freddie came out in auditions, and, and Freddie got the job. So here we are, two friends from Atlanta touring together. He's playing guitar with Paul Revere and the Raiders, and of course I'm doing all the Dick Clark tours with them. And Freddie and I start writing songs together. Well, Dizzy was one of the first songs we wrote, and we wrote it on a on a bus tour, touring one night late at night, you know, with with our guitars on the bus. And uh, well, we started writing. We actually finished it later, but we started it on that tour. And then, you know, after that, we wrote Jam Up Jelly Tight. We wrote quite a few country songs that Freddie recorded mm. and did quite well. So we, we just kind of, uh, it was kind of a good um, situation for us that we became good pals. And uh, he's my writing partner. We still uh, have a new uh, EP out, actually, which has one of our songs on it called Cabbage, which I, it was originally called Birmingham, and I changed it to Cabbage Town to promote the book, you know. And uh, it's called Tommy Rowe Meets Barefoot Jerry. Mm. And you uh, you recorded the song, Dizzy, uh, with all those great L.A. session musicians, our friend, the late and amazingly great Hal Blaine and that whole yes. terrific wrecking crew. Yes, I, I was very fortunate to hook, to hook up with those great musicians. I had, you know, when I cut Sheila and everybody in Nashville and Muscle Shoals, I had the cream of the crop on those sessions. They were the A-list musicians. And when I moved out to California, I hooked up with Hal, Joe Osborne, Larry Nechtold, Ben Benet, all those great musicians in California. And we recorded Dizzy and Jam Up Jelly Tight. Heather Honey was with Hal. And uh, Stagger Lee was, I cut with Hal. All of those great songs, you know. So they were a tremendous group of musicians, I tell you. And I was very fortunate to have them on my team. Well, whatever people want to call it, the uh, soft rock bubblegum music or just great uh, singable unforgettable music uh, you've been making people smile uh, for well, about 65 years or so now uh, by making great music we play a lot of your songs here on the station and you hear a tommy rowe song you can't help but smile and feel good and there's not much better legacy than that it, it's called happy music it's called happy music that's what we like to call it but uh, I tell you, Rich, I get a great thrill when I go on stage and I sing Sweet Thea, Hooray for Hazel, Dizzy, one of my songs, and I see this big smile on the face of my audience. It seems to bring out, you know, the happiness of my shows. It's, it's just overwhelming, you know, and it's, it's really what it's all about for me at this stage of my career. Like you said, I've been in this over 55 years, and I've seen a lot of things come and go and a lot of styles come and go, but there's still an affinity for... 60s happy music and uh it's it's been a real blessing for me tommy thank you so much it's been great to talk with you so glad to hear you're feeling well and uh, we appreciate you making time for us here today it's my pleasure rich always a pleasure thank you so much that's tommy Rowe talking with us here on downtown the podcast we'll take a quick break for this word from cross insurance and come back and 
Talk a little baseball with writer Dan Epstein. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast. Taking you back uh, about 43 years or so for the Rolling Thunder Review. That tour chronicled in a new film by Martin Scorsese. We had a chance to talk about that, a little baseball, and much more with our friend, writer Dan Epstein. A lot going on. I want to start with your thoughts on a movie that's gotten a lot of buzz lately, uh, the new Scorsese take on the legendary Rolling Thunder review of Bob Dylan. You saw it. What do you think? Uh, You know, i got to be honest. I thought it was kind of a mess, um, which I suppose makes a certain kind of sense, given how much of a mess the Rolling Thunder tour actually was. But um, it, it's it's a weird mixture of really amazing live footage. I mean, it's some of the best live Dylan footage I have ever seen, and just in terms of performance and intensity, and and you know, just re- that that period was a very interesting one for him, where he you know he kind of made this tour come back with the band in '74, and then he was going out again in '75 and '76 with a real motley crew of of musicians, some of whom he'd been playing with uh, on and off for years, you know, old friends like uh, Roger McGuinn and Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell, and then people like Rob Stoner and uh, Mick Ronson um, as as part of his his backing band. And it's really a a fascinating and very fiery time in in Dylan's uh, uh, musical evolution. So that's all great, but then there's all this kind of uh, talking head stuff, which I believe it's supposed to be kind of Scorsese's homage to Robert Altman, <laughs> but it doesn't really come off very well. I mean, I think Scorsese's about the most un-Altman uh, director of of uh, from that period that you can think of. So it, it you know, it, it's I think it's supposed there's a lot of a lot of people kind of playing other people. There's there's uh, a lot of kind of shaggy dog stories. There's this whole bit with Sharon Stone talking about how she was on the tour as a you know as a young model and you know acting as a seamstress for the tour. She actually was nowhere near the tour. It's just you know <laughs> supposed to be kind of a joke, you know. And it's kind of funny, but it just kind of drags on interminably and really I, I feel like it kind of detracts from uh pretty heavily from the music you know i would i would give the film an a for music and 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 footage and then you know a d for 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 all the other crap that's in it what's the highlight of the film for you oh there's this performance of the song isis which is just i mean i felt like somebody was kicking me in the chest while i was watching it it was that 
uh, breathtaking and intense. It's worth watching. We're seeing the film just for that sequence. We're talking with Dan Epstein here on Downtown. Some exciting news about your book, Big Hair and Plastic Grass, an audio book coming soon, right? Yeah, real soon. I mean, it's great. I mean, even since before the original book came out in 2010, I had people asking if there was going to be an audiobook version. And for whatever reason, my publisher didn't want to uh, to go there. Uh, but I was contacted recently by Blackstone Audio, who uh, do a ton of audiobooks. And uh, they not only wanted to do the book in an audio version, but they wanted me to narrate it. So uh it's coming out next week uh you can find it through audible and uh google play and just about every place else there are audiobooks for uh streaming but you know if you if if you're really into uh solid media there's also a 10 cd box set version uh that they're putting out so uh you know i i feel like i've made it now that i have a box set <laughs> i love it i went back and and reread the book for i, I think it's the third time now it such a wonderful book and and a decade that that I know meant a lot to you it did to me as well because the 70s were such a unique decade in baseball history and you mentioned in the forward to the book there weren't a lot of big gaudy offensive numbers you only had one guy hit 50 homers in that decade and baseball was sort of tailored to those artificial turf stadiums that had cropped up yeah, I mean I'm you know a lot of people miss misread the book and misread the title as me being in favor of AstroTurf, which which I never was, but you have to admit that there was a style of play that uh, began to a lot of teams began to to sort of um, build their teams based on how baseball was played on AstroTurf, and and it was very exciting. It was all about speed and you know balls hit down the line that you know suddenly you know could turn from a single into an inside the park home run i mean it was it was like playing in playing baseball in a pinball machine <laughs> and uh there were there were so many exciting teams from the time like the Kansas City Royals and and uh the late 70s Houston Astros and you know and then even even the Reds to a Cincinnati Reds to a certain extent where it's like you know that they had a lot of sluggers on the team but they also had a lot of guys you know, that they had great defense, which was very important to have, uh, when playing on artificial turf. And, uh, you know, and a lot of guys who could hit, who could make contact and hit for average. And, you know, and, and while I don't want to see after turf coming back, I, I do miss the days where, you know, it was about something other than, you know, strikeouts, home runs, or bases on balls. And we've talked about this with you before. It was also a decade of so many great characters in the game i would also say fashion wise hideous but awesome at the same time maybe the greatest decade for baseball fashion uh, both in terms of uniforms facial hair you name it yeah oh absolutely i mean you look back at any any baseball cards from the 1970s especially starting in like 74 75 and you, and you just see all these guys sprouting the long hair and the mustaches and and uh you know, and, and the uniforms are, are getting very colorful because for one thing, the teams are, have adopted polyester, uh, <laughs> over cotton and wool as a material because it wore better. And then, and, and that made it easier to make more colorful, to, to, to imbue them with more colorful designs and which in turn, 
you know, I mean, we don't think about this now because we all have color television, but in the, the 70s were the, was the first decade where Americans had more color than black and white TVs. And this was, you know, this was, it was very exciting to watch an MLB game on color television, you know, especially something like the All-Star game where you had all these guys wearing the different uniforms and, you know, it was just this, you know, it, it was like a fashion show, just like, you know, you've got the Houston Astros with the uh, Tequila Sunrise, you've got the Pirate, Pittsburgh Pirates with like, you know, 30 different combinations of, of cap jersey and, uh, and pants and socks and, and, you know, really most of the teams, with the exception of, say, the Yankees and the Red Sox uh, and the Dodgers, really got into adding more color to their uh, to their uniforms. And it was a lot of fun. I also feel like it was the last decade for great nicknames in baseball. It, it really was. I mean, it's, you know, you just go down the line, you know, Al the Mad Hungarian Roboski. Mark the Bird Fidrich, uh, Bill the Spaceman Lee, uh, Mickey, Mick the Quick Rivers. I mean, it's just like on and on. There, there's, there's, there's so, and, 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 and like you said earlier, great characters too. Like these were, this was an area, an era where players were feeling more comfortable with being themselves, uh, you know, on the field and in the media. And it wasn't just about, sort of uh, towing the line and letting your team's PR guy dictate uh, the sort of things that you should be saying. We're coming up on the 40th anniversary of one of the most infamous events of baseball in the 1970s. You lived in Chicago for a while. Can you believe that they're going to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Disco Demolition Night, even bringing back Steve Dahl? Yeah, you know, well, I can actually. It's, it's. I mean, if you lived in Chicago in that in that period of time, I mean, that was. I moved to Chicago right after that happened, maybe three or four months afterwards, and still, you know, into 1980, that's pretty much all kids my age were talking about was Disco Demolition Night, and you know, it's it's a it's an event with a really complicated. A, a much more layered and complex background and legacy than than people uh, uh, ascribe to it now. I mean, it, it's a lot of people, you know, accuse it as being sort of a, a racist, um, anti-black, homophobic uh, event, and that's not really what was going on uh, with Steve Dahl. It was definitely more about protesting the sort of omni cultural omnipresence of disco, which was, um, you know, I mean, by the time disco demolition happened, you had, you know, grandma and grandpa were taking disco lessons at Arthur Murray <laughs> and there were disco fashions at JC Penney's and, you know, and, and, and the American record industry was really, you know, going whole hog on disco and just like, you know, just cranking out the product. And, you know, uh, really, the American record industry did a lot more to damage disco's long-term prospects uh, than Steve Dahl ever did, just just by sheer glut of, of crappy product. And, I mean, there was a lot of great disco that came out. I, I was and remained a huge fan of, like, Chic and and uh, and Funkadelic. I mean, they were, they were more funk than disco, but they, they were moving into that arena at that point as well. Um, 
but you know but but there there was a lot of really forgettable product that was i mean ethel merman came out with a disco record in the summer of 79 how 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 done was disco at that point anyway so it's it's you know i i think i, I think it, it was you know a lot of the people who came to that event were there not because they were racist or homophobic they were there because they wanted a party and see records get blown up uh and, uh, you know, and strike a blow for rock and roll, which also ironically, a lot of the, the music that they were, you know, that Steve Dahl and, and the station he worked for at WLUP were really behind, you know, that sort of classic rock of the seventies, you know, that was kind of running on fumes by then too. And, you know, all these bands like Led Zeppelin, yes, the who, I mean, they would, they would all be gone or, or making, you know, uh, significantly worse records uh, uh, by the end of the decade and into the next. I know Doc Ellis was one of your favorites. Uh, you were featured in the great documentary about Ellis. Have you heard anything new? There was talk for quite a while about Ice Cube making a biopic of Doc Ellis featuring his son. Do you know if that's still in the works? Um, uh, the last I heard is that for whatever reason, Ice Cube and his son are no longer attached to the project. And I don't know what the workings are behind that. Uh, but, and that, that's really too bad. I mean, Doc was an incredible character. I mean, I, obviously he's best known today for pitching a no hitter under the influence of LSD. Uh, but he was also, you know, a, an incredible competitor. Um, I've, I've never talked to a teammate of his who said anything but but great things to say about him. And this is a guy who, after he uh, you know left baseball and got sober, uh, did incredible work with uh, recovering addicts, especially ones uh, in prison, uh, which is you know far and away more giving back to. Uh, uh, to, to the human race than, than, than many players of, of uh, his era or since uh, have, have done. So, uh, you know, his is a very inspiring tale, and I, I hope we do see it, uh, see a, uh, uh, a Hollywood version of it one of these days, but uh, it doesn't sound like we'll be seeing it anytime soon. We've got another uh, big music anniversary coming up this summer a bit before your time and mine, but still uh, one of the landmark events in the history of rock and roll. What's the lasting effect of Woodstock 50 years later? Wow, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm one of these people who tends to believe that it's a little overrated, um, that, you know, certainly the, the, the movie of the, the concert uh, hasn't held up well, and the... You know, this sort of festival, uh, concepts, uh, that it, that it, uh, made it all the rage for a little while there. Um, you know, I mean, it, that, that sort of was already Altamont, uh, just, you know, a few months later really mm. kind of sounded, sounded the death knell for that. I mean, I, I think, I know Rhino Records is putting out like a massive box set, uh, this summer with, you know, just about every note that was recorded at, at the concert. And, you know, and, and I'm sure that all, there'll be a lot of interesting and worthwhile things on there. But, um, um, but, but on the other hand, you get like, I think they were trying to make a, a, somebody was trying to put together a 50th anniversary Woodstock concert, uh, uh, in or near Bethel, New York. Uh, where the original one was right. and the funding's been pulled from that. And, and I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, you know, it, it, it kind of, 
I guess the, the lasting legacy in my mind is that it turns the town of Woodstock into kind of a tourist trap and uh, where you can, you know, still go and buy tie-dye T-shirts and, <laughs> and, and all that. But uh, I, I think, you know, really, I think the, the most important uh, music festival of the 1960s was Monterey Pop in 1967. I think that, that the legacy of that is far more uh, uh, widespread and important to this day than, than Woodstock ever was. It's a big day today in the rock and roll world, an important birthday. Ray Davies, 75 years old today. Yes, uh, I think if I had to pick a favorite all-time songwriter, it would be Ray Davies of the Kinks, um, especially the, the work he did from uh, 1964 to uh, the early 80s. is just an incredible run of records and and songs and and you know if if I would if you made me pick a top hundred of of you know my all time favorite songs I would wager that Ray would probably have about forty percent of them. Well, keep your eyes open for the new audiobook edition of Dan's great book, Big Hair and Plastic Grass. Is there an extended disco remix if you get the box set? That would be amazing. I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> Next time, Chapter 2, we'll do that. Hey, Dan, it's always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for making time for us. Uh, enjoy your summer. Get some beautiful weather and send it our way, please, whenever you can. You got it, Rich. Thanks so much for having me. As Dan Epstein talking uh, baseball with us. So excited. His great book, Big Hair and Plastic Grass, coming out in audiobook. Boxed set. I love that as well. Always good stuff with Danner. Thanks to him. And thanks to the great Tommy Rowe as well for visiting with us. And thanks to you for joining us. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Leave us a nice review. Subscribe. Matt Cash is welcome too, but I felt like that was perhaps asking too much. Either way, hope you'll join us next time right here on Downtown, the podcast. Downtown.